Hi, everyone. This is Kyle from The Career Guide. And before we start our podcast today, I just wanted to say thanks for listening and subscribing. And I also wanted to make sure that you knew that we have a free community for graduates, young professionals, or really anyone that's interested in finding, starting, and managing their international career. So go ahead and check the link in the show notes, and you can join us inside the community where there's 130-plus members already striving to achieve their international career. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you inside the community. And now on to our podcast. And I remember clearly a former professor and a contact from the UN University reaches out to me and, uh, and says, there's a job in Pretoria. It will pay, and they didn't say it like this, but this is something I'm remembering it. It pays half of what you're making right now. We won't pay for your flight. We won't pay for accommodation. And you have to sort out your visas, which sounds horrible. But I was like, I'll take it because I was so unhappy. And I went from being a public information assistant, I think they call it GS contracts, I'm not sure now, um, for the UN in Peru to basically be an um, associate researcher or junior researcher for the Africa program of the UN University in Pretoria, short term contract. And I lived in a hostel for nine months because that's all I could afford. And I loved every minute of it. Hey everybody, this is the Career Guide Podcast, brought to you by Capacity Building International and your host, Kyle King. If you've dreamed of working abroad and having an international career, this podcast is for you. Every episode is an interview with someone from the international community. We hear their stories, how they got started, and about their life and experiences while working abroad. Each episode will provide you with personal insights, tips, and strategies to help you launch your international career. We hope you enjoy this episode and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn and sign up for our career newsletter so you don't miss out on your future and opportunities. Okay, so today we are joined by Rafael Velasquez and Rafael has managed humanitarian and conflict mitigation programs for the last 17 years, working for the United Nations, the International Organization for Migration Mercy Corp, and the Norwegian Refugee Council, Plan International, and the International Rescue Committee. He has built up a solid background in the in-field experience, managing complex emergencies in Sudan, Ethiopia, Yemen, Jordan, Syria, and as a head of mission in Nigeria, Guatemala, Colombia, Venezuela, and currently, Rafael is the country director for Mercy Corp in Lebanon and is a visiting instructor at the United Nations University for Peace, where he teaches complex project management. Rafael, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to the Career Guide podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation. Pleased to be here. So one of the things, as you know, as we talked sort of previously before getting, before getting started, was we all sort of have an origin story and how we got started in our own international careers. And everybody is is largely very different in, in how they get started. Uh, for me, it was simply by accident. Uh, and for you, it might have been a different story. So maybe that's a great place to start. Is how did you actually get started in an international career? So there's a, there's a part of it that is upbringing. My father is a diplomat, a Peruvian diplomat. I'm, I'm a Peruvian. So we travel a lot as kids. And I knew I didn't want to be a diplomat, but, uh, but I also didn't know anything different than the constant move from country to country to country. And then when my time came, there was undergrad in political science. There, there was an element of it, which I will call it in Spanish, la causa, the, the, the calling. There was a lot of readings in undergrad relating to the Rwanda genocide and the Balkans. And, and I knew I wanted to work in that area. I wasn't sure how. So I volunteered a little bit. I ended up volunteering in South Africa for um, uh, ICRC, the International Committee of the Red Cross. And uh, a great head of delegation told me, well, you have to go to grad school and 
he referred me to the UN University in Costa Rica, where I ended up teaching later. And while I was there, uh, I had this vision that peacekeeping was going to be my thing to do. Uh, I was incredibly fortunate after grad school that I landed a job as national staff in Peru working on the for the disarmament agency, the UN disarmament agency. And truth be told, I wasn't a fan of working for the UN, but undergrad and grad school opened a number of doors through teachers that eventually led me to working for INGOs mostly in uh, humanitarian relief and conflict management, and eventually as head of mission for different NGOs. So that's how I ended up going through all that journey. Uh, I would say that is an element that was a calling, and there was an element that was just uh, luck, perseverance, and one thing leading to the other without it being in my control in any way, really. You know, it's really interesting. I mean, I think a lot of us have had some type of, I don't want to make it sound too formal, but some type of formative experience, like you mentioned, like your, you know, your family had a diplomatic status and was moving around probably. And so you were sort of exposed to it early on in terms of having an international life and international career. And, and that really sort of shapes us a bit. But you also mentioned the university and the school and things like that. Was that a significant factor for you or like your professors and sort of guiding you in that process? I think it was because at first, for I, I couldn't even tell you why right now because it doesn't sound like my identity in any way, but I wanted to study international business. And my first couple of months in college were in studying international business. And then I shifted to political science, which couldn't be more broad of an area of study. That it really, uh, as much as I enjoy it, it really served very little practical knowledge that I use on a day-to-day basis. But then I started studying international relations and then, you know, specific regions. And that really got me involved. It really, really was grad school when I was international peace studies, which is really conflict management that defined it. And then meeting people, uh, the university I went to, the UN University for Peace, it's a practitioner school. It doesn't have the name of many of the big, uh, you know, Columbia, Johns Hopkins, SIPA. But I met people that indirectly became mentors to me, like Mark Rogers. And, you know, he has been working on peace building for the, um, um, it's, a, it's a George Mason University. And, you know, opening a world that I did not know that existed. And, uh, and really looking at what they were doing, for me, it was... Maybe I, I had an idea of where I wanted to go and which direction I wanted to head, but it was in the university and a lot of these professors that showed me what it looked like and more importantly, how to get there, I think. So when that, when that was at the, just so I'm clear, because we can also talk about the higher education piece, which I have certain opinions mm-hmm. about, but that was specifically because you were at that UN university, right? That they were able to sort of guide you in that process because they had probably come from that type of environment before. Is that, does that sound right? Yes, because at the undergrad level, uh, it was in Canada, someone facing University of Vancouver. It was political science. It was uh, political philosophy teachers, mostly a couple of uh, experts that you know did geopolitics. But again, there wasn't really a direct connection with what I ended up doing in terms of working in humanitarian missions. It was mostly readings and areas of interest for research. At that university, I met people who were country directors, people who worked on disarmament, people who work on, you know, uh, for the, uh, in, in chemical weapons and uh, terrorism. And, and that definitely, I, I would say that it still wasn't a, a direct, this is who you can be, now go be it. But definitely show me a world that it is not clear because there's this vision of our line of work. In you, one of my favorite comparisons, you watch this movie, um, the one with Brad Pitt and Zombies. And, you know, he's supposed to be a WHO operative of some sort. And having worked with the World Health Organization, you're like, that position doesn't exist. That 
that is not something that, that actually happens. But, but there's an idea out there. So when you actually meet people who work and make you realize that at the end of the day, all of us end up in front of a computer, no matter whether you're in Bangui in Central African Republic or you are in New York, um, uh, it helps dispel the good and the bad of a lot of this, a lot of this job. That's probably one of the most accurate statements I've heard in a long time. <laughs> which is it doesn't matter what you think you're doing. You're going to be in front of a computer writing reports and assessments and everything else, right? <laughs> yes. Um, so, okay. So after university, um, I mean, you've, like you said, you completely changed because now, you know, you're in a completely different country. You're not sort of in, in the South America sort of area anymore. And how did that come about? How did you evolve to move halfway across the world? So from having lived, you're, you're right, my, uh, my upbringing was to Latin America mostly. And then I got this job with the UN agency and I was not happy. I was, I was writing, writing, writing about, I was a public information assistant and I didn't feel the substance of the work that I wanted to do. And I remember clearly a former professor and a contact from the UN university reaches out to me and, uh, and says, there is a job in Pretoria it will pay, they didn't say it like this, but this is how I'm remembering it. It pays half of what you're making right now. We won't pay for your flight. We won't pay for accommodation. And you have to sort out your visas, which sounds horrible. Nice. But I was like, I'll take it because I was so unhappy. And I went from being a public information assistant, I think they call it GS contracts, I'm not sure now, um, for the UN in Peru to basically be an, um, what was my position? It was um, uh, associate researcher or junior researcher for the Africa program of the UN University in Pretoria, short-term contract. And I lived in a hostel for nine months because that's all I could afford. And I loved every minute of it. And we were doing um, trainings on conflict prevention, conflict management, and conflict resolution. We were working with uh, academics from different African countries. I was being exposed to different regions. And from there, that opened the door to my first position as a peace building officer for Plan International in Darfur. And that's when I get my first taste of humanitarian work. And at that stage is one of those things where, okay, one piece builds onto the other, onto the other. But up to that point, that's when we have those um, major shifts, you know, almost like paradigms. And But uh, from that point on, it starts building on each other of the blocks. Mm. Yeah, that's that's largely true. I think we we have to sort of build out our careers. That, like there is no, and I've said this before in some of the courses that we teach and, and with other, you know, sort of podcast guests and things like that, which is like there there is no defined career path, right? It's it's not like somebody says, okay, well, step one, two, three. We all sort of go through this process of exactly what you said, which is that there was some point, even for me, when you just somebody gives you an offer and you make a decision to do it or not. And that's a, a pivotal decision that we're making in our lives because it changes everything after that. And then once you make that leap and you that sort of leap of faith or courage or whatever you want to call it, and you decide to take a job for half pay with you know and pay for your own airline ticket and live in a hostel for nine months, you know, or whatever. That's when you start actually understanding what what you can build, and then it's sort of your responsibility to start building after that. It's really starting is sometimes the hardest piece uh, in terms of the career, and and so. Was it just because you were bored uh, that you just decided to make that leap of faith? Or was it simply because, you know, you weren't in the right position at the right time and you were always sort of courageous and wanting to jump out there and, and do something? I, like a combination of uh, wanting to do something that was more meaningful to me 
an, an element that I was not in the right path. Uh, I, I didn't feel that I was where I should be. I, I, I need for adventure. I need to go and do and see something different out of my comfort zone. And and I would say that uh, it's also those, uh, those those moments in your life where you can afford to take those decisions. Because doing that, it's been one massive jump to another, even though there was, in my mind, a linear progression. But to go from South Africa to Darfur, um, then I jumped in Darfur from an NGO to a multilateral organization, and then from there to Yemen, and then you know from, from, from there to the Somali region of Ethiopia. Uh, there was a point where I could make a lot of those leaps, uh, and, and it's okay because it was just me. Uh, and obviously that comes at a cost. I, in some of these uh, missions, I ended up sacrificing relationships and, uh, and uh, partnerships. And uh, now I'm uh, 42 years old and I'm a father. Uh, I recently became a father six months ago. And you realize that those days of taking those missions are long gone. And the flexibility of that, uh, I'm glad I did it when I did it. But I know that now it's a completely different game and it takes a lot more planning and a lot more preparing and a lot more contingency. So I think, back to your question, sorry, um, uh, it, it was because I could and it was for all those other callings that I, I was feeling at the time. No, that's really good. I mean, I, I, I want to talk about that because everybody who we've sort of brought onto the podcast mentions that. There is a, another pivotal point there uh, where you you start getting into the you know, you settle into your career, you start having things like you're considering family, you're considering stability, not just sort of mission to mission and assignment to assignment in the field. And you have to make these different decisions that nobody ever talks about. And nobody ever really tells us about like, when would that be? And what should you consider? And it's not always just this, um, you know, sort of glorious journey of an international career. But before we before we get to that, I did have one question for you, which is about, you know, you're wanting to have a, a larger impact because many people say that, especially if they're sort of postgraduate and they, they want to get out and they want to create, they want to do, they want to build something, they want to do something tangible and, and feel that success. Did you feel like that the, the field work that you did there, did that do that? Did, did that do that for you? Did it scratch that itch that you had? Was it something that actually f- was fulfilling in that way or could it have been something different? Like what sort of perspective do you have on that for people that are having that same sort of urge or need? I know that when I was younger, as I concluded one mission or an ex period of time, I was constantly disappointed at not achieving whatever I walked in thinking I was going to achieve. I know that I remember this line in my head. I, first of all, I was in, probably still I am, but I was incredibly naive, but also it's this Boy Scout mentality of save the world. If, if, if I could, I probably would have tattooed a UN logo somewhere in my body um, uh, just because I believe so much in the movies and everything I read. And then I got a taste of it and I was like, no, this is not it. So then I went and, you know, almost volunteered as a researcher. And I was like, this is better, but not quite. So then I end up in Darfur with an NGO and this is getting better, but oh my God, this is... Uh, and for different reasons, you know, uh, bureaucracy... Uh, what I would consider unprofessional behavior, risk, uh, unacceptable levels of unprofessionalism, things like that every year. And, and I was particularly uh, disgruntled and I th- not being able to be happy where I was. This is one of the things that if I was to go back in time, I would say, chill, the, the part of this happens and eventually you cherish it because I made some of the best friends in my life during those very difficult times. And I didn't have that. But um, now that I look back, it's funny how Yes, there are things that we've accomplished that I am so happy that I carry with me. One of my last 
proper emergency missions was in Colombia with the IRC. And we set up an integrated center for access to health and livelihoods and multi-purpose cash assistance. And I walked out of that mission with a tangible feeling of that was good. That was, we did something. But for many and the majority of the other ones, I would say that I look back and honestly is the, um, is the people I met and the, the, the people you hire. And I remember people who you thought, you know, you, I, I remember this young man in Yemen who uh, came in as a volunteer of one of our youth programs and we hired him as a logistics assistant. And now he, uh, you know, he went through the process and now you look back and he works for the UN special envoy. Uh, for Yemen and and, 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 and and you look back at these people and see them flourish and having been part of that journey for them actually is one of the most impactful things that I look back and I'm proud of more than a lot of those, uh, you know, more uh, tangible number of people uh, that receive access to water and sanitation services, et cetera. Yeah, no, that's actually quite interesting because I think we have to find the wins, so to speak, right? And sometimes it's not what we think they are. Um, and it's more of the 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 day to day interactions and the the process of improving people's lives, not necessarily the end state of your life has been improved, you know, yeah. because I'm here, right? And and because it, it is a large bureaucratic machine, and and you deal with that, and I deal with it, and we have donors, and we have stakeholders, and we have all sorts of different things to juggle and balance, and and I think, but on the day to day basis, the individual interactions are so critically important, um, and sort of shaping people's perceptions and realities and and even our own you know because i think one of the things that i've noticed at least throughout my career especially when we're you know like you mid-career and we can sort of fast forward into that now i think where we are today and you even mentioned this where we are today is is vastly different from where we started uh, because we've been shaped by the international environment do you feel like you've changed a lot over the last 17 years I think so. I, uh, I, I feel it. I also, to be honest with you, I mean, they're, they're for good and for bad, I, I like to think I'm a little bit more patient. I like to think I'm a little bit more realistic. I see a lot of young people in my office that eager in their first five years and you can feel their impatience. And I'm like, yep, I was doing that. I was questioning every decision of the country director and, and I was, uh, you know, so, so definitely there's an element of change in that. Also, there's a, a an element of, um, I want to say not tiredness or fatigue, but definitely I miss the energy. I miss the, uh, that, that, that I used to have. And yeah, sure. I, I, you know, I, I'm a father of triplets. I'm tired all the time now, but, um, uh, <laughs> um, um, so I, I give myself that, uh, whole pass, I guess is what I call it. But, um, but I definitely look back and I'm like, I, I had more energy, but I also was, uh, blind in so many ways. Now I, let, I have a little bit more peace uh, with me. I we, we were talking about relationships. Uh, at one point, uh, I got married. Uh, my wife and I set a course where we will take turns. Uh, and that meant that I had to give up some amazing professional opportunities. And it meant that she had to give up on some amazing professional opportunities. I've seen many uh, relationships that are, are unable eventually to make that arrangement work. It has worked for us so far. and uh, And I think that I would not have worked with the me of my 20s if I had met my wife when I was in my 20s. It worked with the me of 35 because I was at a different place and at a different speed and a different pace. So I'm, I'm glad that I met her when I did, um, uh, but uh, my priorities changed, my approach changed. Uh, otherwise, it might have not worked out. And I know that that's what happened to many friends. Yeah, that's very that's that's very realistic, right? So, I think that when we when we fast forward to sort of mid career issues, I think that's one of the things that come up 
more often than not, which is sort of the relationship management piece. And, and, you know, as we were talking prior to us starting the podcast, you know, the sort of the, the contracts and how do we manage our careers and, and everything else like that. And that's something that I think and people often don't understand, especially when they're just starting out, because it is that five-year focus. They're eager. They want to get in, want to do something, and people want to get, you know, some work done and, and accomplish some things. But it's really, you know, when we start have to considering the, the next steps, what is the next step after that? What is, you know, many projects are running on that three-year project cycle, or in many cases, they're running on one-year budget mm-hmm. renewal cycles. And so we are always left in a position of having to manage our own careers and what that actually means, uh, largely because there is no defined career path. And two, because that's the international system, right? Everything is sort of project and donor based to a large extent. Now, when when we're talking about that, and I don't like to, to say this in terms of the, the negative connotations, but there are sacrifices to be made to work internationally, like you're just mentioning, you know, and, and I don't want to make that overly negative because I think the, the benefits far outweigh the negatives of having an international career. But there, I think it, to be realistic and to tell people there are actual sacrifices you do make for that, you know, in terms of living conditions, communication, the ability to have access to the Internet. You can't go down the corner to Starbucks, you know, and I think a lot of people understand that, but they also don't understand the amount of uncertainty that's out there. And so, you know, what has it been like for you in terms of, you know, you've been through so many different countries, so many different projects, and you're having to always I would imagine, keep an eye out for sort of the next step of where you're going. And especially at a point now, like, I mean, triplets has to be very demanding. So you always have to think about like, where is your next step? What is that like for you now when you have to sort of manage an international career? I, 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 I hope I'm better, but I was horrible at this during the first half of my career. I did this jump from one to the other. And maybe part of it was that I didn't really have a reference point. Um, I mentioned that my father is a diplomat, but that means he was, uh, you know, career diplomat, which means you always have a job. So my reference point was he worked all his life for one organization, the Peruvian Diplomatic Service. And um, and when it was my turn in my 20s, you wouldn't even worry about it. And then uh, uh, later I started realizing I don't have a pension system. There is uh, organizations that will contribute. Uh, if you're a third country national as I am, sometimes they don't. And being as undisciplined as I was with resources, it just meant that at the end of service, if I didn't continue with the organization, eventually I get paid out and I put it on my savings account and forget about it and really didn't think about it until I'm on my 40s. And now I realize, oops, I look at some of my responsible friends and I'm nowhere near that. So there's that. Um, Another example is medical insurance. You know, we are exposed to a life of stress. Uh, You could develop chronic conditions. And uh, a lot of the people in this line of work I'll give you a concrete example right now. I was just having an exchange with HR about my medical uh, coverage and that of my dependents. And they said, well, the month you end, uh, let's say that you end on the 15th of February, then uh, the end of that month is when your coverage ends. So now you're thinking, okay, so now, you know, you're not going to, maybe, but you're likely not going to find a perfect match between one job and the other. So you need to plan for that in terms of not just covering your rent and your food expenses and your transportation expenses and your communication expenses, but also your insurance while living abroad, moving. So the, the, the line of work means that you automatically start creating a Gantt chart of your to-do list against the timeline and, and, and trying to plan everything. But uh, yeah, going, go, going back to the question of uh, getting better at preparing for all these elements... There is, as you said, I think the positive outweighs the negative. And I think it's important to realize how 
incredibly privileged we are to be able to engage in this line of work. A lot of it to me has to do with the fact that, for example, being able to go to grad school. Uh, and then after grad school, a lot of my friends that ended up landing good jobs were able to go and volunteer for three, six months uh, so that they created a revenue stream that created the program that eventually hired them. And many people from developing countries don't have that opportunity. So, so a great sense of gratitude for being able to engage in international work. But there is a reason why when you take a group of 50 expats, you will see that most of them come from northern countries and it's not necessarily know-how. Sometimes it's access to credit. But that doesn't mean uh, uh, many of my friends, when they go back, they go places to the UK or Scandinavian countries or European countries where universal healthcare is in place. But my American friends don't have that advantage. So when they go back without a job, now they have to think of prohibitively expensive medical care. So you have to watch out for all of these things and you have to plan for that ahead because because uh, it doesn't, no, no one takes care of that for you. So you have to take care of it early on. There's a lot of factors there that, that you're absolutely right. We have to think about all that stuff, that, you know, transition time between positions, how long is it going to take? And, you know, I generally tell people that it takes about, if you want to be really on the safe side, give yourself like a year, right? Because mm -hmm. by the time that you process out, maybe you want to take some time off, but then there's the whole application process. It's First of all, it's finding the position and applying and then interviewing. And then everything is sort of time after time after time, especially in the time of COVID where everything is slowed down dramatically. You know, everything tends to be more um, bureaucratic. And the larger the organization, the longer it takes, in my experience, right? But, um, you know, if you're looking at that now, I mean, 17 years later, and you're looking at this now, like what sort of things would you recommend people do if they have to think about these sort of issues? And I'll, I'll caveat that with a sort of some context first, which is like, you know, I've spoken to many, you know, I did 200 interviews last year with many different sort of graduates and postgraduates and just, you know, trying to give everybody 20 minutes or something just to, you know, help them kickstart an international career. And, and many of them were going for this three, four, six month, nine month sort of volunteer type position. So in order to sort of build that foundation, like you're talking about, so what sort of advice do you have for people that are trying to just get started in that way when they, when taking into context, everything you sort of just mentioned about what they should be thinking about, what are some of the things that they should be sort of checking off on their checklist if they're going to do that? Um, uh, for the people who are able to go in that journey, I, I, I will start with something and I don't mean this in a Machiavellian way, but, um, building those relationships. It's amazing how uh, contacts work. I don't think that you go and hit people on LinkedIn for a job or just look at people and build relationships with them because one day they will get you a job. Uh, I, I think people can see through that. Um, so I, that's not what I'm talking about. But I do think that in my experience, I would say the vast majority of the jobs that I've secured have been because someone knew me and could vouch for me. And so if you walk in knowing that Yes, you want to do a good job. Also understand that maybe it's not the person you're going to be working for or the organization you're going to be working for, but the connected, the network, the extended network you'll be interacting with. So if you're going to go uh, volunteer for three months for Jesuit refugee services in uh, Zambia, and that means that you're going to be part of the protection working group that includes uh, Danish Refugee Council and Norwegian Refugee Council, your professionalism during those meetings, your behavior, your uh, your outputs, your uh, your 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 ability to uh, work well with other people is critical in the next connection for the next job. Not just your manager just with refugee services in this hypothetical. That's one. The other one would be probably the planning of the uh, specific uh, things we were just listing in terms of you know taking care of yourself. We talked about pension. We talked about health. 
Uh, it's important to talk about mental health as well. It's a, a completely ignored area um, for, uh, I think, a lot of uh, expatriates, uh, people working internationally. And it does add up and it, and it comes in the places that you least expect it. I have worked in humanitarian settings for a number of years. And I remember that it was at some point in Guatemala, not a place you would expect. And a little bit later in Colombia that it came back to me one day and it just hit me. And I was lucky. We had a service provider uh, that uh, works with the organization I was working with at the time that was able to provide me with a number of sessions to talk a lot about this. But the reason I bring it up now is because not many people will have that. And so being able to think about it, to know that you're going to be exposed to that if you're working, it doesn't have to be humanitarian or conflict settings. Sometimes it's the workload. Sometimes it's the being away from home. Um, They're not being able to have that safety net that people have when they stay at home with their families or friends. Just the being apart has an impact, and we, we shouldn't you know, uh, uh, say that just because we're good and resilient, it won't affect us 10 years down the line. And perhaps I will also tell people to enjoy it and to not spend every day thinking about the next step as much as I did. Do plan for it. Do know that it's uncertain and do have a you know, six-month-to-a-year forward-thinking plan. But once you set it up on paper and write it and maybe give it your 15, 20 minutes a day, then be in that moment and be happy where you are because you will miss it. Yeah, that, that's very true. And I think on the sort of the stress management piece, that's something that in, in many different organizations, they've started looking at in terms of the mental health aspect, especially if you're in more sort of risk prone areas and there's a higher hazard, then that obviously has to be considered, especially not to point to any sort of any recent events. But I, there, there are certain areas of the world that are at higher risk than others. Uh, and, and many, many, many pl- different places. And when you are working internationally in those locations, it, it's sort of the severe long-term exposure to dangers or high stress and things like that. And that absolutely has a sort of a caustic chronic effect on us over time that we need to be able to decompress and to be able to sort of deal with those issues. And you're right, it does come back to you. I spent 26 months in Afghanistan mm. and and going back you know, home after that. And it takes, you know, months, if not a year or more to just sort of decompress, to get that out of our head, you know, and to just so used to being in that environment. And, and I think we do have to slow down. I mean, I agree with that, you know, planning and, and sort of, we don't want to add on to the additional stress of like, what is your next step? Right. So you don't want to carry that burden as well, but you do need to do something. Otherwise we get overtaken by events, you know, (laughs) and all of a sudden it's, you've got one month left to sort of clean things up and get out. And then you're like, okay, well, I, I'm not prepared, you know? Exactly. No, you don't want to, you don't want to be the person that in the last couple of months is updating their CV. Yeah, no, definitely. And, but there's one thing too, that's like sort of the counter of that, which is, um, I've seen people stay for seven, 10 years in like one position in one country. Um, have you seen somebody that might have stayed too long? Do you think there's a balance in terms of assignments, in terms of time? Uh, I, I guess it depends. I've seen people uh, really flourish being away and abroad and maybe finding a new home away from home, uh, particularly in places like in, in Guatemala, people who just... They, they, over the places I've worked with, obviously, I'm not uh, saying that this is one place in particular. I think if you have that connection to where you are, that's great. And also development work is different than humanitarian work. I, I also have seen people that will show up in Darfur who have been doing humanitarian work for the last 10, 20 years, and they probably needed to stop. And you could see it with negative coping mechanisms, which I'm not pointing fingers. I think we've all done it, but the extreme and what it does to you. So I've, I've seen it work for good, work for bad. I, I would say that in the spectrum, when I look back, I'm 
I, I tell myself, oh, I, I wish I would have managed to stay just a little bit longer because I have cut mission short for a number of reasons. Most of it, most, most of the time it would be like burnout, which wouldn't have been the case if I had uh, had a better understanding of some elements, if I had paced myself a little bit better. Give you an example, in Nigeria, I was only about a year and a half, nine months. And uh, and looking back, with a different approach, I probably could have stayed longer. And it was, uh, you know, it was, it was a good mission. It was good friends, good colleagues, good work, good 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 things taking place. And then there's other missions where I've, I've been there and I stayed too long because I didn't want it to look too short in the CV. I was like, I just arrived. I've been here only three months. That's not good. And honestly, whatever was telling me to pull out, uh, it was wiser than I was because it only extended the misery. I was I was not in the right place and and I should have just moved on quicker and, and, and get it on with. All, all of that is obviously hindsight at this stage. But um, but yeah, when I look back, I, I, I oh, don't know exactly when I could have done better. Right now in Lebanon, for example, we, we're leaving and it will be another shortish mission as a country director. Changes from organization to organization, but the expectation would normally be, I think, minimum of a couple of years. And I am cutting it short. It will be just shy of two years. Because unfortunately, the context has changed. And this is no longer a place that I feel that um, I can have three little babies uh, that were born premature with the access to help that they need. And so I don't feel bad about that. I'm like, okay, I'll start planning and preparing for the next move. Um, and, and you take that on and prepare for the next move. What's that like then when we talk about sort of that mid-career transition and, and we're sort of circling back to that topic again, but in mid-career transition and, you know, so you say for anybody that's been in the field for three, six, nine, 12 years, whatever the case, you know, they are building out their portfolio, going through the different aspects of field work. And then everybody hits that point of a mid-career transition. And so now we have to think about things differently. What does that mean for you specifically now? Like sort of what are the factors that you think about now, now that you have a family, now that you have to sort of pick your locations? You have to pick the assignments. What what sort of things do you look for now? So I guess the main thing is that now we have to look at family posts, which are fewer uh, in this line of work. And so the options are more limited, which means more planning, better uh, ahead of time. And so I'll give you an example. When I met my wife in Nigeria as I was leaving, uh, I did a couple of short missions and then I moved to Jordan and we came up with a list of places we both wanted to be based on. And it was an extensive list of, I'd like to say, more than 80 countries. And we did that a couple of times after. And the most recent one now, it became the first exercise. So as we start planning the transition, the list is so much shorter because it's not just family stations. It's also like, we'll like to be a little bit closer to home so that the girls can have some time with their grandparents. And... So there's fewer family posts. And now I want the region specifically. I love to be in Latin America. So the first list is now six, seven countries. And we're going to give it six months. And if that doesn't work, we'll extend the list to East Africa, places like Nairobi, et cetera. And if that doesn't work, then we'll extend it to the next countries. That means that I need to have saved very well <laughs> for all of that. I need a base to basically be able to have a holding pattern. I need a plan B. So I already have... Uh, a number of organizations that I've done consultancies for. So as I'm sure you know, there's an interesting dynamic in this line of work where at one point, short-term consultancies can pay just as much, if not more, than long-term positions, even at senior levels. So when we transitioned from Guatemala to the UK, 
I ended up doing emergency work and basically working half of the year, earning as much as I used to do working the full year. And so it's not ideal, but it is an option. So right now, as we go through this next six months planning process, one of the things we have in the back of our heads with my wife, who also works in the same line of uh, work, is, okay, if nothing comes after six months, then I can take short missions. That will cover us for six months without going too much into our um, savings. And then we go back to the drawing board. So basically, you have to buy yourself time. And in one way or the other, we bought ourselves one year of unemployment. And then we think that's enough of a safety net. Um, but that's not the plan, of course. Hopefully, it would not be more than one or two, three months break. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think that it's almost exactly the same thing I do. Uh-huh. So when, you know, when I, I tend to give myself sort of like three years in some assignments, and then I think there's a natural, and I don't know, maybe it's just my experience, but I think there's a natural break at about three years uh, mm-hmm. for, for many different reasons. But I just largely think that that's sort of the project cycle. And that once we get into like three years, you sort of, you know, because it, it, it takes months to get used to our environment to understand our environment. And then we have time to sort of create an effect, to do something, to achieve something, to build something. And then you need sort of six months to start transitioning out, to start looking, to start start finding something. So in effect, there's about 18 to 24 months of where you can actually, like you say, enjoy the time, enjoy the work, try and achieve something. And then the rest is sort of transitional in, transitional out type of things. But in terms of transitioning out, it's always a factor of, for me, it's it's the same. It's like that 12-month grace period that we give ourselves, the, the luxury of being able to take time to, to continue in our own career path the way that we want to and not having to be forced into, uh, because then we'll end up taking a position or something we don't actually like, you know, or being deployed somewhere that's a non-family duty station or whatever the case is, or even if going into private sector just because you have to. So that I think that one-year time frame works works very well, but obviously I understand that most people don't have that luxury to be able to do that. But I think that we have to build towards that, right? So if people knew now, like today, what we're talking about, you know, when they're first starting their career, you're going from what I think is a fantastic opportunity. Obviously on paper, it's a little bit different in reality, but, you know, I think that if I was starting out, I would basically just start out and save half, <laughs> You know, save half of whatever I'm making because every month is two months, you know, and and you just do that up until where you get that one year safe zone and then you can do what you like. But uh, once you build that into your sort of lifestyle and system, then you always have that one year to be able to protect yourself uh, and and have that transition period. A hundred percent. And I would say also the transition itself changes. So I remember my first couple of jobs, there was maybe a period of three months between them and and I will move back home. I wasn't happy about it, but I was back with my parents, no rent. And, you know, at some point, uh, I moved back with friends, just a little bit more expensive, but a little bit more free. And then at some point, so um, now, obviously, none of that is an option for me. And because I can afford to, you know, move and rent a place and do all of these things, but the transition changes. And uh, and I, I, I agree with you. Safe. Uh, it, there is something I don't want to center too much around money, but the nature of the work has changed. It is more program center than than organizational uh, center in terms of, you know, you connect with our organization. It's great if you connect to an organization. I am particularly close with Mercy Corps. I've maybe developed almost half of my career with them, but I, but I think it's, it's not a, um, there's not a loyalty the way you see it in some uh, books or it's an organization that 
the organization and I align well. I align very well with the International Rescue Committee as well, but it is emergency work that I do with them. And I have to be upfront about that. It's a symbiotic relationship while it is. And when it's not, no hard feelings, different bosses, different positions, not a priority, no job guarantee. So I think you're right. We have to be very, very good about saving ultimately, I guess, is the, uh, the, the, the best resource. I, I, I wish I was better about setting up a base uh, in terms of like buying a small place, investing in a small apartment, even if I'm not going to use it and rent it out. I've seen people do that. I think that is very, very clever if you can do that. But yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's very important to create your own safety net if you're going to engage in this line of work. Now, what's interesting about what you're talking about before, and as we sort of get close in on our hour here, the you had mentioned that you've gone, there's like a space for consulting, right? So it's not always just the mission and the project, there's space for consulting, which is helpful in transitional periods and things like that. But that implies, again, I feel the same way, but we're also sort of more senior in our careers versus people that are just starting out, right? Or maybe just, you know, what we might call young professionals or junior professionals by, you know, whatever organization we're talking about. But, you know, there's really a space there that I think, you know, you and I both recognize the fact that we are international professionals, right, quote unquote, and that we have a defined skill set that's marketable across many different industries and organizations. Uh, however, it took us time to accrue that. And I think that there's, there's real value in, in trying to tell people that if you're starting your career now, really take an entrepreneurial approach to what you're working on, you know, build out your profile, build out your skill sets while you are working. And I think, and I'd like to hear your opinion about it, that there is a real value in sort of taking ownership of your own career to be sort of entrepreneurial, because it is about your sort of brand, your identity, the work that you're doing, your portfolio, the collection of these projects and these, these missions and these assignments and the work that you've done, volunteer or not, make this rounded out portfolio that help you to you know, be, a, be in the market later on as a consultant or as a short-term consultancy or whatever the case is. And I, I think that there's some real value to that. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. I, I think you're spot on. We definitely, you, you, you. It's, 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 it's a portfolio. It's almost like a, a dealing with an architect or an artist, and they bring you their portfolio. And, and there is something about how we design it. Um, for example, I started as a technical person on peace building and conflict management, and then I made a move, and it was not an easy one to move into the country office management to so become a country director, which put me away from. And portfolio so far was at the time peace building programs, mediation training, violence prevention, you know, uh, primary, secondary, tertiary violence prevention. And then you basically have to take on programs that you're new to. I started working with agriculture, which I had no background on. And, uh, and, and, and that is very clear on my, uh, on my LinkedIn profile, on my CV. There's no hiding that, but it was intentional. I can justify it. I can connect it. I wish I had done a better job in terms of forecasting. So at that point, I, I, I knew I loved working in conflict prevention in conflict areas. I should have known that that was not going to last 20, 30 years professionally for me if I wanted to have a family. So entering this line of work as a manager of a country office portfolio was a lifeline in some ways, one that I enjoy. And it taught me a lot of things in terms of programming related to gender, market systems, which I really enjoy now. But I was lucky. I stumbled. I didn't plan for it. Whereas young professionals can make it almost modular. You can start preparing to know that climate change is going to affect any line of work related to emergency and development. So keep that in mind. There are 
cross-sectoral themes related to gender that will impact. So you, you, if you plan for that, if you're aware that no matter what we do, what we do, whether you work on disarmament uh, or whether you work on peace building or markets, there will always be a component for conflict sensitivity. There will always be a component for gender sensitivity. There will always be an issue related to climate change. Now, people could be better about that. I didn't, and I wish I had. I, I think that's that's correct. I, I think that we have to sort of, again, take this ownership and start trying to predict where things are going. I know, and I also recognize sometimes it's hard to do, right? It's yeah. hard to know where everything is going, but we obviously can see the different missions and projects that are coming up. So it, it's almost, you know, look at that horizon scanning and seeing what's out there and see what new projects are coming up, what's starting in terms of governance or whatever they're bringing up, climate security and everything else, and then start you know, understanding what people are actually funding in terms of international organizations or nations, bilateral partners, donors, whatever the case is, what are they funding? What are they working on? And then how does, you know, my portfolio fit within that? Or should I do something to, to advance that? Well, you know, it's a good comparison to that as well as geographical coverage. So a lot of times you take a job because it's a job and you need a job and you don't get to be selected. So I ended up taking a job in uh, Darfur, which was fascinating, but it definitely was not on the top of any list at the time. And then I took another job in Darfur and then I got a job in Ethiopia. And next thing I know, I could only apply for jobs in East Africa. And, uh, and then my background opened a window for me to work in Latin America. But if I ever wanted to have a global uh, portfolio, then that was the moment, the first five years where I was like, I can take a more junior position and move to Southeast Asia if I want to be exposed to conflict dynamics in Sri Lanka. Um, I could, uh, this is the moment to move to Mindanao and, you know, take that step back at this point. Because later in life, right now for me, to be able to take a regional director position in uh, anywhere in Asia, it's, it's not very likely. Uh, and, and, and that's fine. But it is something that I think connects to what we're saying is like you cannot guess, but there are elements that you can hopefully consider. Well, there's certainly things you can prevent, right? That's true. Um, and so, like you said, and that's an actually a really interesting point that we sh we should talk about briefly. But there are things that you can get, well, like we say, pigeonholed, right? You sort of you get stuck into one specific thing, and that's your niche, and that's all you're ever known for. And I think we have to do our best to prevent that. Like you, I've, I've had the luxury of being able to transition through a number of uh, different international organizations, which has given me a sort of a breadth and a depth of experience that allows me to then take a step back and become this international professional, quote unquote. But it, that is a real risk. And I'm glad you brought that up because you could work in two or three countries in one region and then you're only defined by that because nine years later, that's all you've sort of worked on and you've become a regional expert, which isn't inherently bad if that's what you want. But that is also detrimental towards you moving somewhere else. So if you, you know, in the traditional sort of UN system and things like that and other inter big international organizations, there's that the piece of, well, there's field experience and then people want to go to Brussels or New York. And, you know, you lose that, let's say, more strategic leverage the longer that you become niched. Does that sound about right? No, I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think that's, uh, I, um, I, I remember sitting with a person that I consider a men mentor and, and complaining to him, I'm like, you know, every job I take, I end up being the safety and security focal point. And, 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 and it's because I've done it in the past. And, and then he's like, stop putting it on your CV, remove it from your CV. 
And the truth is, he made me realize my um, I was fooling myself. I actually enjoyed doing the, the work. I, I, I didn't go and erase it because although I like to complain about it, I actually enjoy the the, the, the the work. So I didn't remove it from my CV, but I stopped complaining about it. But he did make a good point. I'm like, you, we pigeonhole ourselves into a lot of these things. So there is uh, there is that that we can uh, prevent. Yeah, that's 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 interesting. That that could be a whole other discussion in and of itself. But um, Rafa, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really insightful to hear your story and, and sort of your your origin story and your journey. And and I think you've brought a lot of sort of insights and information to people that are going to listen to this. And I really do appreciate your time. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for letting me be part of this.